beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is your perspective on the leadership of the church? How do you view the men that God has appointed to serve as pastors, elders, and deacons? Do you tend to be charitable in your perspectives on them? Are you inclined to be critical towards them? How do you react when your leaders say or do things that displease you or stand in the way of you getting what you want? How do you react to the weaknesses and the failings of your leaders? Most of us expect our leaders to lead. We expect them to be effective in the execution of their offices. We want them to be faithful, to set a good example for others. Yet the history of leadership over God's people is riddled with leaders who failed. David was guilty of committing adultery with Bathsheba. Isaiah was a king in Judah who was devoted to the Lord's service. Yet when he was strong, his heart grew proud. And contrary to God's command, he entered the temple to burn incense at the altar. Peter was guilty of being a people pleaser, no longer associating with the Gentile believers when members of the circumcision party came to town. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In the last half century, we've seen the rise of various televangelists and of megachurch ministries. Yet some of the most famous leaders have been disgraced. Televangelist Jim Baker was found guilty of sexual abuse and fraud, and Jimmy Swaggart of cheating on his wife. In the past year, we've seen Ravi Zacharias, a famous Christian apologist, exposed as being guilty of sexual misconduct. And Carl Lentz, lead pastor of Hillsong, guilty of marital infidelity. These men had a huge following of devoted followers who were all left feeling betrayed. They felt betrayed because these Christian leaders did not practice what they preached. It's not just televangelists and megachurch leaders that have faced crises in their leadership. The same happens in our churches and among our sister churches. Being in leadership is often a difficult and at times a lonely task. We have pastors in our churches that have faced burnout in recent years. Some struggle with anxiety or depression. There are men who have been deposed from office because of sexual misconduct. Some have even committed suicide. Our text this morning deals with the failure of Israel's first leaders, Moses and Aaron. They were again faced with the grumbling and complaining of the congregation. When Moses and Aaron approached the Lord, he gave them instructions about what they should do. But they didn't do what God told them. They took matters into their own hands. They acted in a way that promoted their own honor and glory, which pushed God to the background. This morning, we'll try to understand what led to their moral failure and how despite their weakness, God continued to care for his people. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. 
Moses and Aaron sinned by failing to honor God as holy in the sight of all Israel. We'll see the weakness of Israel's leaders and the power and the glory of Israel's God. Israel wandered aimlessly in the desert for many years after the refusal to enter the promised land. The Lord's judgment was that none of the rebellious generation would be allowed to enter Canaan except for Joshua and Caleb, the spies who gave a favorable report. Yet the time of their... Yet the time of their desert wandering had nearly come to an end. Our text records the deaths of Miriam and Aaron. Numbers 33 tells us that Aaron died in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Numbers 20 and 21 record how Israel traveled from Kadesh Barnea through the wilderness of Zin and around Edom and Moab until they camped in the plains of Jericho, in the plains of Moab opposite Jericho. Jericho was a place where they would first enter the promised land. And so we see progress is being made. The time of their wilderness sojourn was coming to an end. Most of the older generation had died. The younger ones were now taking over. Our text marks a big change, a generational transition. Soon God's people would take possession of the land promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would do so under new leadership. Just like in Exodus 17, the Lord once again tested his people with a lack of water. And just like their fathers, this new generation failed the test. They didn't just complain about a lack of water. Once they started grumbling, many complaints of the past get added to the list. You sometimes see that happen in a marriage relationship. Perhaps a husband offends his wife by forgetting to pick up his dirty clothes. Perhaps the wife offends her husband by failing to pick up something from the store as she promised. Yet a relatively minor issue results in a big argument in which all the grievances of the past six months get brought up. Well, that's how it was with the people's complaints directed against Moses and Aaron. They repeat the complaint that their fathers had made, that Moses led them into the desert to die. The people repeat the charges made by Dathan and Abiram in Numbers 16, verse 13. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up from the land, from a land flowing with milk and honey, to kill us in this wilderness? These complaints were totally unfair. The Lord had been providing their needs for 40 years during their desert sojourn. He had provided water and food in miraculous ways. But God's people had not learned to put their faith and trust in Him. It's clear that the sins of the fathers have influenced the attitudes and the actions of the next generation. So how did Moses and Aaron deal with their complaints? They went to the entrance of the tent of meeting. (coughs) (coughs) And they fell on their faces before the Lord. In humility, they prostrated themselves before him, knowing how the people's sins grieved the Lord. 
Our text tells us that the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord commanded Moses, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Our text records how Moses took the staff from before the Lord. It appears that this staff was a special one. It was Aaron's staff that sprouted and brought forth buds and and produced blossoms and bore ripe, ripe almonds. The Lord had caused Aaron's dead stick to produce new life as a sign that he had chosen him to serve as priest at the tabernacle. Afterward, it was stored before the Ark of the Testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels so that they would no longer grumble against the Lord. Number 17.10. In Exodus 17, the Lord had commanded Moses to take his staff and strike the rock so water might come forth from it. But in our text, the Lord gives a very different command. He tells Moses to take the staff which was to be assigned to the people, and to tell the rock to yield its water. Moses was to speak to the rock, not to hit it. Yet in this, Moses did not obey the command of the Lord. How did Moses disobey? Well, first he gave an impromptu speech. The Lord had not commanded him to say anything to the people. Yet Moses says, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses talks as if he is Lord and judge of the nation. He labels the people as rebels. He forgets he was not called to judge, but simply to serve. Moses' evaluation of the people was not incorrect, but God had not told him to make such a declaration The Lord had told him to extend his mercy and grace to his people by giving them water. And instead, Moses set himself up as their judge. We can understand that Moses was tired and frustrated. He'd been leading God's people for almost 40 years. By now, Moses was an old man. He was almost 120 years of age. Repeatedly, Moses had to deal with the grumbling and the complaints of the nation. Now a new generation had grown up, and it appeared that they had not learned anything from their parents' trials. We understand how tempting it was for Moses to get angry, to read them the riot act, to tell them off. But what Moses did was wrong. Moses and Aaron were representatives of God. God commanded them to show mercy by providing water. They disobeyed by judging the people and telling them off. Secondly, Moses disobeyed the explicit command of God about how he was to produce water from the rock. The Lord commanded him to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses set himself and Aaron up as Israel's deliverers. He said, shall we bring water for you from the rock? And then he hit the rock, not just once, but twice. Moses took matters into his own hands, contrary to the command of God. 
the Lord makes clear what the sin of Moses and Aaron was. He said to them, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses' action of striking the rock displayed a lack of faith. The rock would have produced water even if Moses just spoke to it. But Moses failed to honor God in the sight of all Israel. By striking the rock, Moses and Aaron got the glory for providing the congregation with water. And in the process, they robbed God of the glory due to his name. The failures of Moses and Aaron are common among many church leaders. Many of the televangelists, megachurch pastors, and leaders of Christian ministries are successful in drawing a large following. The problem of success is that it makes people proud. I'm running a successful ministry. I'm a great preacher. Look at me, everyone. When the focus gets put on a gifted person, it gets drawn away from the Lord. People get big, and God gets small. While ministry leaders are supposed to be servants of God and ambassadors of Christ, it ends up being all about them. God is robbed of the glory due his name. There's an even more insidious danger that can creep into the ministry of any church leader. It's the idea that I'm responsible for saving other people. Now, it's true that pastors and elders have responsibility to care for the souls of God's people. They are commanded to speak God's word publicly and privately, to preach the gospel comforting and admonishing, leading and directing God's people in the way they should go. But church leaders are not in charge of the results. Only the Holy Spirit can change a person's heart to cause them to believe in the Lord Jesus and to live a renewed life. When leaders forget that, they often make mistakes. They may make negative judgments about congregation members in their hearts. They may berate them as Moses did in our text. They may get so frustrated about a lack of progress, they beat their own heads against the wall in frustration at members' stubborn rebellion. They may get angry about a lack of evidence of faith and fruit in their lives. Beloved, we're all a work in progress. God works faith and renewal in our hearts and lives in his time and his way. Church leaders are merely instruments of God, tools he uses to accomplish his work. Salvation is God's work. He alone deserves to get the glory for his redeeming and renewing work. God brings judgment on Moses and Aaron for their sin of not giving him the glory and providing water for his people. He tells them that they will not be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. Just like the Israelites were not allowed to enter Canaan some 40 years earlier because of their lack of faith and trusting God, so the way is now also closed for Moses and Aaron because they sinned in a similar manner. 
Our text makes clear the weakness of Israel's leaders. They were old. Their leadership responsibilities were difficult. The hard-heartedness of the people frustrated them and made them angry. Their pride caused them to deflect the glory from God to themselves. We need to remember that Moses and Aaron were faithful men who for the most part had served admirably among God's people. What our text shows is that all leaders are prone to error and sin. Leaders are human. They deal with issues of pride, self-sufficiency, impatience, anger, lust, and covetousness. God has given Christian leaders a great treasure. Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. He has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Church leaders have been entrusted with the glorious message of the gospel that God loved us so much, he sent his son to die on the cross for all our sins. But, says Paul, we've been given this treasure in jars of clay. You know why Paul refers to himself and his fellow leaders as clay pots? In ancient times, clay pots were commonly used in every household, mainly for storing stuff. They were made of clay baked in a hot oven. They were useful, but fragile. If you dropped them or mishandled them, they easily broke. Paul's point is that church leaders are not supermen. They're human beings, inclined by nature to all kinds of sin, susceptible to temptation. That God is pleased to work through exactly such weak and sinful people to show the power and the glory belong to him alone. Brings us to our second point, the power and glory of Israel's God. After being denied entry into Canaan because they believed the bad report of the ten spies, the people of Israel decided to go anyways. They were soundly defeated and had to retreat into the wilderness. Our text shows us something similar happens now when Moses and Aaron failed to honor God and were banned entry to the promised land. Moses sought to travel east from Kadesh through the territory of the Edomites, but his request for passage was opposed by force and ended up in retreat. It appears that Moses and Aaron had difficulty accepting God's judgment and that they were trying to force their way into the land through their own strength. Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom requesting passage through their land. When the king refused, Moses offered to pay for the water they drank. What's striking about verses 14 to 21 of our text is that Moses did not seek the Lord's guidance in determining where to go. Up till that point in time, God had been leading Israel through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But here Moses acts unilaterally without consulting the Lord. 
Our text does not explicitly tell us why the Lord did not permit Israel to travel through Edom on the way to the plains of Jericho. Perhaps in part this was due to Moses and Aaron's lack of consultation with God and wanting to push through to enter the promised land. Yet what our text makes plain is that God was intent on renewing Israel's leadership. Numbers 20 is bookended with the deaths of Miriam and Aaron. The first verses of Numbers 20 tell us about how Israel came to Kadesh in the first month of the 40th year and that Miriam died and was buried there. Miriam was Moses' older sister who watched over him when he was placed in an ark on the Nile River. She led Israel in singing praises to God when he delivered them through the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the midst of the sea. She was a woman honored and well-respected in Israel. Yet her death is mentioned in just a few words. At the end of our text, the death of Aaron is recorded. Because Aaron is high priest in Israel, his death is recorded in much more detail. It takes place when Israel came to Mount Hor. The Lord announced that Aaron would die on the mountain. He commanded Moses to go up the mountain with Aaron and with his son Eliezer. Moses was commanded to strip the high priestly garments from Aaron and to put them on his son. After he did so, Aaron died on the top of the mountain, and Israel mourned for him for 30 days. In doing so, they showed him respect for serving among them from the time they were slaves in Egypt to this day, when they were close to entering the promised land. Yet ultimately, the story is not about Aaron. It is about the Lord and about his wondrous work. It's about the power and the glory of Israel's God. Our text started with the people complaining about a lack of water. Even though Moses and Aaron sinned in carrying out the Lord's command about how to provide water for his people, God still granted them water from the rock. He provided their needs so that they could live. The Lord had plans to prosper them. He did not let the sins of their leaders get in the way of fulfilling his gracious promises to them. Striking that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to Israel's journey through the wilderness. He mentions that they were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul writes, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was the source of all Israel's blessings. He's the source of all our spiritual blessings as well. We need to look to him to provide us with all our needs. For it's in him alone that God grants us his grace. The Lord did not just provide his people with water to sustain their physical needs. He also provided everything they needed to move forward in life and to enter the promised land. He gave them a new high priest in Eliezer to serve as mediator between the Lord and his people. Soon he would give them a new leader in Joshua to replace Moses and lead them in the conquest 
of Canaan. Despite the weaknesses and the failures of Israel's leaders, God continues to show mercy and grace to his people. He continues to work on their behalf so that they could share in the inheritance he had promised them. The Lord did not allow his people to travel through the land of Edom. Instead, he led them by the way of the Red Sea and around the land of Edom. It was a big detour. On the way, Israel was opposed by the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, and later by Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. The Lord gave these kings and their lands into Israel's hands. They destroyed them and took possession of their lands. It shows God had a plan for his people, a desire to do them good, to prosper them. The Lord accomplished his kingdom work. To him belongs the power and the glory. What our text teaches us, beloved, is that even faithful leaders are weak, sinful, and mortal. You do your leaders a great disservice when you put them up on a pedestal. It is a disaster when people hero-worship Christian leaders, no matter how gifted they may be. The Bible teaches that elders have been given responsibility to provide good counsel and advice to their pastors. They have the responsibility to govern their doctrine and life. We all need to pray for our church leaders that God may grant them His grace and guide them by His Word and Spirit. All church leaders are but pots of clay. And that's how God intended it to be. There's a specific reason for that. At the end of the day, it's not about God's messengers. It's all about the message. It's not about Christ's ambassadors. It's about the wonderful gospel that they bring. Our text shows us God's almighty power in providing for his people and leading them on to their promised inheritance. It points to God's grace in Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins and to deliver us from death. Christ is working to gather, defend, and preserve his church. He is gathering his people and leading us to our eternal homeland. Praise God for his amazing grace. The power and the glory belong to him alone. Amen.